electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, John, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report here at Post 9. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. The great wait, and then what for your money? That is the big question. As little is expected from the Federal Reserve today as it wraps its meeting. Jay Powell holding his news conference just after 2 p.m. Eastern time. We begin our debate ahead of that on where the markets are likely heading following the Fed. We'll also welcome in Wharton Professor Jeremy Siegel in just a moment. We're, of course, keeping our eyes on Geneva as well, where that meeting between President Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin wrapped about after about three and a half hours, but earlier than expected. We do expect to hear from the American president shortly. President Biden, we will go there live. Also joining me for the hour today are Jenny Harrington, the CEO and portfolio manager at Gilman Hill Asset Management. Joe Terranova is here, Steve Weiss as well. So is Jason Snipe, the principal of Odyssey Capital Advisors. Let's check stocks. Been a wait and see mode from the outset today. You see it through the indices, which are virtually flat. Dow and the S&P, a touch negative. There is the Nasdaq positive. Ten-year note yield. Not expecting much, obviously, given the fact that it's sitting at 148. Banks, they're lower. Oil, two and a half year high. In fact, we're told David Tepper's made some pretty interesting comments today uh, at a conference saying that he is long oil stocks, pointing to Occidental Petroleum as one. That stock was on the move, and we're going to get into much of that uh, coming up in a second. There's Oxy getting a lift, no doubt, on the hedge fund manager David Tepper's comments. But let's, let's begin uh, the debate right now. Steve Weiss, we're not expecting much today, right? I mean, the market is clearly telling that story. My big question to you is then what? What are our viewers supposed to do post-Fed? Well, it, it depends what your expectations are. If, you, if nothing happens as you say and as is consensus, then I think you have more of the same. I don't think it's at all clear to really load up that rates are going to stay at, at a 1, 5, 10 year forever. It's going to be then let's look to the next meeting six weeks out. Will that be the meeting that Powell comes out and says, hey, we're cutting back on buying, we're tapering? Look, I think there's about a 25% chance today that Powell does go ahead and say we have been discussing tapering. If you recall, it's only the other Fed governors that have said, hey, we've been discussing it. Powell's comments has always been that we're going to taper long before we raise rates. I think the market's calling for that pronouncement by Powell, and as I said, 25% likelihood and a 75% likelihood next meeting. So where does that leave us for the market? It leaves us in this continued state of consolidation. I find the market very confusing at this level. Andrew Sorkin's great interview with Paul Tudor Jones early in the week. If you read between the lines, what I sense from one of the greatest investors of all time is frustration frustration of not knowing what to do. And in fact, he says he's got cash. Jamie Dimon says he's got cash. 
And that's where I think that the market largely is. Mm. We see these rotations in the market, the leadership change virtually every day. We've seen major sell-offs in stocks and sectors that belie the 16 VIX and the market reaching new highs every day. So to me, it's confusing time. I see value there, but as I saw with FCX, Freeport last week, but yet it's down another 10%, and I thought I was getting a good price. So it's a bit of a confusing period. It's a consolidating period. I don't think there's a major move up or down. Okay. I appreciate the honesty, too, Steve. I know our viewers do as well, that it's hard to make sense of what actually to do. And, Jenny, our viewers are relying on you, the investment committee, to help guide them in these months ahead following a Fed meeting that could very well set the stage for the ultimate beginning of the taper. Are you as confused as Steve? And look, Paul Tudor Jones, you know, 5% gold, 5% cash, 5% Bitcoin, 5% commodities. The other 80%, I'm not really sure what to do. Do you have any answers today? I wouldn't say I'm confused, but what I find is that when you're having easy conversations with your clients, like we are right now, because everybody's up a lot, it equates to a very difficult investment environment. And then this, the reverse is true. If you're having hard conversations with your clients, like we were a year and change ago, it's an easy investment environment. So we're in a difficult investment environment because valuations are stretched. There's a lot of unknowns out there. But when I look ahead, and when I say, you could say the way Steve said it, which is this is a confusing environment. I don't think that just because it's a confusing environment or a difficult environment, I don't think that people need to equate that to taking cash. And I think it's just fine when you're confused or when it's difficult to take a step back and just be patient. Because the reality is, is the long-term trend is your friend. And the long-term trends is the market over time trudges upwards. We're going to have a correction at some point. We all know that. But we don't need to cash out ahead of that. And so it's okay just to be patient right now, stay invested, keep holding what you've got, let the noise of the next I don't know, two months, nine months, let the noise be what the noise is going to be. But if you can keep your eye on the horizon, odds are, if you stay invested, you're going to come out just fine on the other end. So I think that's that's one thing that people with patience and okay. with confidence can do to get through this time. All right, Jason Snipe. So what, what if I come back and, and I say, what's so confusing? I mean, <laughs> Fed's not doing anything, right? They're not pulling back any of the liquidity just yet. Earnings are improving. They're only going to get better. Economy's very strong. New York's open. California's open. A lot of other states are open. The virus is on the run in the United States. Rates are low. This sounds like Goldilocks to me, like a perfect environment for stocks to have a little bit of a summer run. Am I wrong? What's so confusing here? It's a great point, Scott, but I I agree with Jenny here. I I do think um, you know, if I think about, for example, the Fed's meeting this, this afternoon, I think it will be largely uneventful, you know, and I, I think they have been clear where their focus is. Obviously, it's been on labor. You know, if you pay attention to the jolt numbers, we still have 9.2 million jobs that need to be filled. You know, so when I think about how the Fed will probably likely continue to stimulate the marketplace and, you know, I look at this push and pull between value and growth. I mean, value is up 18% year to date. You know, growth is up about 8% year to date. You know, it's likely there will probably be a real continued rotation. It started about a month ago towards growth. You know, for us, I think the barbell approach is the approach going into the second half of the year, you know, as we continue to see growth get this bid going forward. But I think largely, um, 
you know, as the market continues to mature, rates will eventually rise. It just likely won't be in the next several weeks or several months. Uh, we'll see. I'm, you know, they're obviously sitting below 150 right now, um, defying a lot of expectations about where uh, inflation is going to go. And on that note, let's welcome in our headliner today is Wharton Professor Jeremy Siegel. He joins us now. Professor, it's good to see you again. Happy to be here. Are you expecting any surprises today? I appear to be the only one here that is expecting a surprise today. Uh, I think we're going to find out at 2 o'clock. Remember, at 2 o'clock is when we get the dot plot and um, we get the survey of uh, economic expectations. And remember, in March, only four of the FOMC members expected a Fed funds increase next year. I believe that that's going to increase to a majority. I think you're going to see a big shift in the dots towards a more aggressive tightening stance. And honestly, I'm not sure the market is ready for that. Um, well, well so, I mean, I'm just thinking, as you're saying that, <laughs> Professor, you're saying that I'm literally I'm literally writing down the words game changer, because if that's what happens today, the stock market is not going to be happy. It won't be happy. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to call it a, a tapered tantrum. I'm going to call it a, a tapered tremor. <laughs> uh, but I think there will be a tremor uh, once they realize. And I think that in the news conference, which follows a half an hour later, he'll be forced to address the dots and the shift in expectations and I think he's going to say we we are going to be considering a taper. I think that that discussion is going to come out during um, that discussion because you can't have an increase in rates sometimes next year, but without first having uh, a taper. So I think he's got to address that wow. uh, sequence. Wow. So, yeah, I, I, I think uh, we're going to see a short term decline. I mean, I. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm basically a bull, so in a way, I hope I'm wrong, but in a way, it's not bad to have a correction. It clears out a lot of excesses in the market, and uh, I do not think basically the bull market is over, but I do think that uh, we're going to have to digest the news from the Fed. Well, I, I realize that it's a somewhat muted reaction in, in the market thus far, um, but I don't think, judging by the look at the intraday charts, that the market necessarily likes what it's hearing from you, Professor. Joe Terranova, I hadn't heard from you yet. I wanted to get the professor in, and I want you to be the first to react. If the professor is right, and we do get a Wednesday surprise today from Jay Powell and company, what happens? Excellent. The market gets exactly what it needs. It gets certification that we're normalizing the complete abnormalities of 2020, both in terms of society and the capital markets. We need rates to move higher. That's exactly what the market right now is thirsting for. Okay, they're going to taper. What are they going to taper by, Scott? $10 billion? They're still going to be buying $110 billion worth of assets per month. The bigger problem that I have is today, after the Fed meeting, and in the coming days, a 10-year Treasury continues with the yield downtrend that it's currently occupying, and we're looking at 130 or 135. What is that telling me? 
Is that telling me maybe that the 7.9 million jobs that we have not recovered yet or never coming back or maybe the economic recovery isn't as strong as we thought? To me, that's the bigger problem if yields continue to go lower. So I hear what the professor is saying, and I hope that that's exactly what happens today because that's what the market needs. Professor, I I feel like you're suggesting something even more dramatic in that the expectations for a rate hike, aren't you suggesting that that would be pulled forward today? That's more dramatic than than a taper. We're we're not talking taper taper tantrum or tremor or whatever. We're talking about a full-blown earthquake if that happens. Well, (laughs) I mean, drawn forward is is not the same thing as the rate hike is going to happen tomorrow or next month. It's just not going to happen in, in 2024 or later, which I always considered an insane expectation given the economy to begin with. And I think that that reality is going to hit the FOMC members and say, hey, guys, let's be honest. We've got to start raising rates earlier than what we had indicated over the last uh, the year. It just we you know, we just had not expected anywhere near the strong economy that we've had. All the expectations on growth and particularly inflation, I think the inflation expectations from March are going to be more than doubled for this year and significantly increased for 2022 also. So, I mean, with those type of uh, increases, you got to talk about paper and then you eventually got to talk about increases. Um, yeah, but I think it's yeah, I mean, the, the, the market, the, the market, with all due respect, Professor Siegel is saying you're wrong. Right. We don't we don't uh, yeah, we don't think the wrong. professor's right. I, I we don't think the inf- inflationistas are right. <laughs> right. The 10 years at 148 as you're making these comments. I know. Uh, and we're going to see in less than two hours. So that's putting my head out there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, we appreciate that. Believe me, I, I, I know our viewers do. Um, you know, sometimes you got to be bold and, and being wrong sometimes is, is being OK. Um, I'm just surprised. I mean, nobody expects the scenario, well, not nobody, but hardly anybody expects a scenario that that you laid out today. So you you were with us some months ago. You said we're in the fourth inning. Last time you were with us, you said, I think we're in the seventh inning. Based on what you're saying now, are we in the ninth inning? No, we're not in the ninth inning. I think we're going to have a, what, the seventh inning stretch a little bit and saying, well, let's pause a little bit. As I said, I, I don't think this bull market is over. I think we're, we're in the time for a pullback. I mean, a correction is defined as 10%. I'm not sure we're going to go that far. Pullback is five. Um, and you know what? If it wipes out a few of these excesses that we do see, that'll set the stage for another recovery. But in the meantime, uh, maybe a, a bit of pain here for investors. What ex- what excesses? Which, which specific ones are wearing well, you I the mean, most? The ones that we've all been talking about in the meme stocks. Um in 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 uh you know in some of those tech stocks that are selling it at multiples times revenues instead of multiples of of earnings and again i you know we're nowhere near dot com 2000 um and i think the you know i think the the market is basically well priced but i just think that uh you know this you know there's this feeling that oh yeah the fed is just going to be this easy in the foreseeable future and i think that that reality has to be faced then Hmm. then they look at earnings and who's going to have the earnings and i do think earnings are going to be great this year but it's going to shift focus so jenny harrington the professor basically says all right 
enjoy the next hour and 45 minutes. But when the Fed gives its decision and then a half hour later, when Jay Powell actually meets the media, it's going to get real. What do you think? Well, you know, it's uncomfortable to disagree with Professor Siegel on national TV. So I just want to caveat that. But I think that we may not be giving Jay Powell enough credit for being the absolute master of behavioral finance and behavioral economics. And we have been being groomed for the taper conversation to begin. The Fed governors, I think, over the past couple months have probably made like, I don't know, 12,000 comments about the fact that tapering is going to enter the conversation. I think we're ready for this. I also think that almost all of us who are investing today lived through the taper tantrum of 2013. So we know what to expect. And I think that there's just a lot of behavior and expectation that's in the market and that's at play. Honestly, I hope Professor Siegel is right, because I like mixed up markets. That's where you have opportunity to buy when things are a little bit dislocated. I know it doesn't make for a pretty portfolio statement at the end of the month, um, but as an investor, it's where the opportunity comes. I don't think we're going to get that lucky. I think the Fed is very, very conscious of not surprising us, and they have proven to us over and over and over again that they will act as appropriate and have done that. So I I think Um, we're going to get the same response we expect. Jenny makes a good point, um, Professor, right? Why are we going to get a tantrum if we not only the Fed has learned from the prior taper tantrum that it delivered and we've learned from the prior taper tantrum that we had to be a little easier this time? We, we understand it, it's coming. Steve Leisman's new reporting in the last couple of weeks has suggested the Fed knows this history. And it's going to be extra careful in the way it delivers its message in a way it frankly has been clumsy in the past. That's correct. But I think that too much has been, you know, hinged on this idea of easy forever. And listen, the inflation news is not good on every front. Every inflation indicator from today's import exports to the PPI that we saw yesterday to the CPI that we saw the week before was considerably above expectations. I do not see how the Fed could ignore that and say, hey, nothing much is happening. Um, And, uh, you know, listen, I want to trust the Fed that they are the guardian of the currency and will take some action coming forward. And as I say, it's going to produce a ripple here. As I said, I called it a, 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 uh, a, 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 a um, taper tremor rather than tantrum. But yeah. I, I do think that they have to face this reality. I don't know. Maybe the expectations are, are out of whack, though. I mean, of course, yeah. there's inflation. Professor, we we just went through a, a pandemic, the worst of which we've seen in 100 years. Lumber has rolled over. Copper is in the process of doing the very same thing. Now, I know oil's at a two and a half year high, but maybe the expectations were out of whack. And clearly, that's what Jay Powell must think, that some of these things that we just mentioned, now wages are a tricky issue, and I I don't know how to address that. You're the expert on that, but maybe the others are, in fact, transitory. But one has to, when we talk about lumbers rolled over, yeah, it rolled over from being up from, you know, pre-pandemic, you know, 1,200 percent and now being up 250 percent. These all these copper, lumber, everything is still up substantially from pre-pandemic. Now they overshot and got over you know, excited. 
But to say, oh, my goodness, now we just don't have to worry anymore, I, I think is, is being uh, a bit naive about uh, the reality of the data. Joe Terranova has a question for you, Professor. Joe? Yes. Dr. Siegel, there's a, there's a puzzle. There's a grand question that we all have. What is the message in a 10-year Treasury that's pricing at 1.48, and what would be the message, what should we interpret post-Fed if we see a 1.35 10-year Treasury? Well, if, if we see a, a, a 1.35, it means I'm really going to be wrong, right? <laughs> They're not going to be scared of that, and, he's, and, 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 and those dots are not really going to substantially uh, move forward. Uh, I actually think the decline of, of the last two or three weeks has uh, more to do, honestly, with the, the fall-through of the infrastructure plan, which was supposed to add over $2 trillion of spending and put pressure on the bond market. That has, has dimmed. I think that's a more major movement for the decline than saying, oh, my goodness, inflation is not our worry anymore. Um, so that's how I explain the decline over the last two or three weeks. The truth of the matter is we're never, you know, interest rates are going to be permanently lower than we had been used to, you know, back when I was younger uh, and teaching uh, in the 1980s, 1990s, or even 2000 to 2010. We live in a mm -hmm. different world of lower interest rates, but that doesn't mean zero interest rates. And with inflation going up, I think the Fed must address that problem. And in and, and meantime, Barclays is out today, by the way. Uh, the market is no longer pricing out of control inflation. And obviously they're looking not only at an S&P 500 that is pretty much sitting at an all-time high, but the fact that bond yields are doing what they are, as Joe Terranova just pointed out. Steve Weiss, question to the professor. Yeah, first of all, just to be clear, I think that Powell will say that we've been discussing tapering this meeting. 25% chance they actually taper. So I'm not that far off from you. But, yeah. Professor, here, here's what I find troubling about, about your comments, is that Powell has, after a misstep early on in his tenure, has been very, very adept at messaging to the markets. And to think that he's going to blow that credibility or that the Fed overall, the FOMC, all the governors are going to blow that credibility in this meeting. When you do see inflation subsiding, we're seeing in stocks like Caterpillar, like Dow, like Lion Dell coming off their highs as well as the commodities. And it has to start somewhere. I just don't see that, that they're blowing their credibility, which they've taken so many painstaking time, steps to ensure, I don't see it happening. Well, so how do you, why that, do you think that that's what they'll do? Well, don't forget, the, the 18 FOMC members are independent, and a week or so ago, they, they gave yeah. their independent indications. And on that, this may not be summarized in the statement, because that's a consensus that needs a majority. But I'm going to say that there, I would not be surprised if I were a fly on that meeting, hearing a number of people saying, listen, I'm hearing from my people here that I've, I've not heard of for decades about inflationary pressures. And I think as the Fed, we cannot, cannot ignore these inflationary pressures. And I think that as a result, you're going to see it in the dots, you're going to see it in the forecast, and then... Uh, you're going to see Powell being forced to acknowledge 
that. Um, and yeah, he's going to take a consequence on, on, on a bit of a market hit. But I think everyone is going to say, good for you. You're doing something about something that, that we've been talking about for a long time. Listen, he's damned if he does or doesn't. If he ignores it and everyone ignores it, I think the market is going to say the Fed is clueless and it's just going to let the inflation run and the money run. And then we're going to be in worse problems later on. I'd rather have a ripple here with the Fed actually acting than a clueless Fed that says, hey, really, guys, nothing is, is worrying us at all. That's my opinion. Okay. So what do you make, Professor, before I let you go, of Paul Tudor Jones earlier this week on, right. on, this, I mean, I, on this network? I mean, I, I think my, my commentary is basically agreeing. And I listened to his whole interview yesterday. And I think, uh, I think he's right. And I think, the, I think the Fed has to act. And he said if the Fed doesn't act, he was going to go out in, all out of inflation. You know, the truth of the matter is, is commodity markets went up two, three, four hundred percent because they saw all this stimulus and money and they got a little bit overblown and coming back. But they ain't nowhere near those levels that we had even pre pandemic. And that was a strong economy with a three and a half percent unemployment. So, you know, the fact that we're 20, 30 percent above that level, even excluding oil, means that there's something going on out there that the Fed has to address. So if he if 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 Powell doesn't do anything today, you agree with with PTJ that you go all in on the inflation trade. You know, you get well, a little more hedged. You, I mean, you buy I think gold. Trade you buy is already, Well, commodities. you know, we can talk about Bitcoin versus gold. But, yeah, if 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 the Fed and the dots don't show any substantial movement, that means more inflation coming forward. And those stocks that benefit from the inflation are are going to be the ones to go into. So in that case, Mm. I would agree with him. Man, you always bring it, Professor. Uh, And that is why I so very much love speaking to you, especially on big days like this one. We'll talk to you again soon. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. You stay well. That's Professor Jeremy Siegel down at the Wharton School in Philadelphia. Oil prices. We mentioned two and a half year highs. Energy is the best performing sector this year. Is it time, though, to sell those stocks? We'll debate two big calls. We'll talk more about what David Tepper is apparently saying about the oil trade, the stock he likes as well. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back right here at Post 9 in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier. Because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit ODFL.com. Old Dominion. Helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. 
Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Well, judging by the move in the market right now, I don't think uh, investors have really liked what Professor Siegel had to say. Maybe we get a surprise today, he suggested. Two o'clock, we get the decision. Then we get the news conference from Jay Powell. We're going to have to wait and see. Markets are making a little bit of a move, however, to the downside. We're pretty much at the lows of the day for U.S. stocks right now. The 10-year note yield, 148, so just below 149, pushing, the, uh, pushing that level. Let's get the headlines now with Rahel Solomon. Hi, Rahel. Hey, Scott. Here's our CNBC News update at this hour. In the U.S., new COVID infections are dramatically lower thanks to vaccinations. But there's also new research showing that old infections are still a problem. In a review of healthcare claims, nearly a quarter of COVID patients still had at least one symptom more than 30 days later. The European Union is now recommending that its 27 member states start lifting entry restrictions for U.S. tourists. Each country, however, will make its own decision. Italy is already allowing Americans to visit, although COVID testing is required there. Meanwhile, France is lifting its outdoor mask mandate. And on Sunday, the country will end eight months of nightly COVID curfews. And back here in the States in Florida, the state's last coal-fired power plant is getting demolished. Florida Power and Light imploding the chimney this morning, as you see it go down there. Officials expect the entire plant will be dismantled by the end of the year. And on the news tonight, why a utility bought the coal plant just to tear it down and a look at what's replacing aging power plants. You're now up to date. Scott, I'll send it back to you. Okay. Rahel, I appreciate that very much. Rahel Solomon. It's time to ring the register on this year's top performing sector, energy stocks. That's the call from our next guest, Jonathan Krinsky. He's the chief market technician at Baycrest Partners, and he joins us now on the phone. Welcome back. This is a big call. It's good to have you on today. Yeah, thank you, Scott. Um, yeah, I think now, it's, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Finish your thought. Nope, finish your thought. My, my apologies. No, so I was, I was just going to get right into it. Um, so there's really, you know, two, two aspects here. First being the commodity crude oil. Um, we've actually seen a record 14 consecutive days with higher intraday highs. Um, prior to this move, the, the longest we've seen uh, of that stretch was 12 consecutive days. Uh, and this goes back to 1990. Um, we saw that in 2003. Now, of course, that was during the Iraqi war. So, um, you know, maybe not a great comparison. Then you saw uh, more recently in 2011. Uh, and both of those did see some pretty meaningful downside in the weeks ahead. Um, and that's just to say that, you know, 14 consecutive higher highs, while that's very strong and bullish, it doesn't um, it doesn't mean that you can't see some weakness uh, pretty soon thereafter. Um, and then, you know, we yeah, I just don't let me stop, stop you real quick. Let, let me let me yeah, stop you real yeah. quick, because, you know, look, we're, we're oils at a two and a half year high. OK, judging by your Twitter handle, Krinsky PGA, I'm guessing your golf game's better than David Tepper's. But this guy's a grand poobah. OK, <laughs> he's out today saying that he is long energy stocks. He mentions Occidental as one of the names, and that's up. And isn't he right? I mean, what what evidence is there to suggest, given the economic boom we're having, given the fact that we know inflation is ticking up, that oil's just not going to keep on going, and then those stocks are just going to keep going right with it? Well, yeah, you know, we'd be the first to say we, we don't necessarily like being on the uh, the opposite side of Tepper, but I think, you know, one thing, if, if you were to ask him, I'm sure he would, he's probably been in this trade before today, I'm guessing. I'm not, I'm guessing he's not 
initiate a new new position here today. Um, a couple other things I'll mention though. Uh, so if we look, if we're talking about the broad-based energy sector, it's up 90% over the last eight months. Prior to this move, the biggest eight-month gain for the energy stock since 1990 was 55%. So we've already almost doubled the best prior eight-month period. Um, the second, and this is, I think is the biggest the biggest issue that we see. Um, if, you, if you look at a long-term chart of the energy sector. We're now coming up to some massive, massive overhead supply. Um, if you think about 2011, 2016, and 2018, those three periods all saw pretty meaningful bottoms for energy. And that price level is exactly where we're at now. So we, we had, you know, a decade of support that was broken in the 2018 bear market. We're now retracing and back up to those, um, those prior lows, which we think it will now act as pretty meaningful resistance. Um, and then the last piece, you know, just on a year-to-date basis, which, which to be fair, is, you know, kind of cherry-picking the starting point, but nevertheless, we're up 45% on the year. In the history of, of the energy sector, the biggest yearly gain has only been 32%, and that was in 2007 when we had, you know, $140 oil. So there's just a lot of, uh, a lot of things here that I think suggest at least a pause, but probably some, mm-hmm. some price pullback through the summer. Um, and let's, you know, let's, Let's also not forget about some anecdotal sentiment evidence. And, you know, we're starting to see calls for $100 oil and, you know, upgrades from, from a lot of the banks that missed a lot of the move. So for, for us, it just feels a little bit late. It doesn't mean that, uh, you know, we can't have a, 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 you know, have this conversation again in September and, and be looking at higher moves. But I think for the summer, you know, we're just expecting some, uh, some consolidation or pullback here. Uh, don't don't start hedging yourself already before the conversation even <laughs> ends, Krinsky. I mean, come on now. September, that's a long, a long time away. I hope we don't have this conversation in, in September and this, this doesn't work out for you. But anyway, Jenny, Jenny Harrington, you own Chevron, Energy Transfer, Kinder Morgan, Magellan Midstream Partners, One Oak, Williams. Is Krinsky right? Are you are you concerned about this trade that you have a pretty decent amount of exposure in? No, and this is one of the things I love about being an investor. There are two ways to look at everything. So he's a technician. I'm a fundamental analyst. And so I'm taking a much more fundamental macroeconomic perspective on this. There was an article in the Financial Times this morning, and the headline is, oil likely to hit $100 a barrel. And who they're quoting on that are actually the the commodities traders. So they're not talking to just the the, um, research analysts. They're talking to Glencore, Trafagora, Vital. And what they're saying is, they're saying that new supply is slowing ahead of demand peaking and also before green alternatives can take up that slack. So they're talking about a real supply-demand imbalance here. That's what my thesis has been for a very long time, that, en- that oil and energy wasn't getting the, cre- the credit for how much demand there still was in the system. Um, Jonathan said something about cherry-picking a time period, and I think that's an interesting comment. If you take a further back approach, you can say oil's at a two-and-a-half-year high, or you can still say it's trading at half of what it was six or seven years ago. If you look at the energy sector over the past five years, the annualized return is actually negative 5%. Meanwhile, five years ago, oil prices were at about $43 a barrel, and now they're at $73 a barrel. So then I, I take all of that and I couple it up with the stocks that I own, and here's what I see. I see all of those stocks that you mentioned before, they're all trading at a fraction of the market multiple, and they all have hefty dividend yields. So I look at that and I think, you know what? There's a lot of room to go here. They've, they've done a lot this year, but they haven't done a lot over the past five years. And, um, okay. and earnings growth is strong for all of them. So, yeah, you just look at the whole picture, I think. 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, Krinsky, appreciate it very much. Interesting call. And uh, rest assured, we're going to have you back long before September. And I look forward to those conversations. Jonathan Krinsky uh, joining us there. Hey, check out this fintech stock. It's surging this year. One Wall Street firm now says there's even more upside from here. We'll give you the name on our mystery chart. Of course, we're going to debate it. It's our call of the day. We'll do it next. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. CNBC's Evolve Global Summit underway with an all-star lineup. Andrew Ross Sorkin spoke with Pfizer's CEO about fighting the pandemic in the second half of the year. I think in the second half, I said already in the first half, we will release approximately a billion. In the second half of this year, we will release uh, two billion doses. Uh, That's amazing. And uh, I really am humble with our engineers, the scientists in our manufacturing uh, manufacturing sites all over the world that they are doing this miracle to happen. And um, so in the next half, I expect that uh, we will see this proportional way towards the developing uh, uh, middle income and low income countries rather than towards the developed that they already received in the first half significant doses. All right. A stellar lineup still ahead at CNBC's Evolve Summit, including the CEOs of McDonald's, UPS and Harley Davidson. And you can see all of the other interviews from earlier sessions on demand. You can head to CNBCEvents.com slash Evolve. Let's do our call of the day. SoFi initiated with a buy rating at Rosenblatt. The firm also calling it a top pick. We've made it our call of the day. Hasn't had a great week. Weiss, you, you tried to have some action in here. You were stopped out. I was. So if you recall, when I went into it last week, I had said, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I'm worried about the lockup at the end of the year, at the end of the month, rather, when so much stock comes off and can be sold in the market. And I think it will be. This is not a market that's friendly to SPACs. It's not a market that that's necessarily friendly to Jamath's incredible number of SPACs that he's done. I actually think it has a negative uh, uh, view of that in terms of the market. So I just want to be careful here. I don't know if it goes to 16. What I do know is ultimately it's a great holding. It's a little expensive to have a game for this market. And I think it's got one of the top CEOs in the market, Anthony Noto, who's tremendously experienced. So I'd like to get back in. But having started with a small position, I'd rather just not be there when this lockup happens. I thought they would run the stock into the end of the month, which is why I got involved. Oh, yeah, understood. Um, also noticing here, if we can pull up the, um, the major averages, guys, before we uh, take this quick break, we're at the lows of the session. We really weren't moving all that much uh, until just about 15 or 20 minutes ago when we had Professor Siegel on, Jeremy Siegel from the Wharton School, suggesting you may actually get a surprise today out of the Fed. You did start to see stocks make a little bit of a move lower. It's uh, kept going a bit. 
NASDAQ's down about 26 points. Dow, as I see it here, was just down about triple digits, come a little bit off that, not all that much. S&P 500 down 20. That's at the lows of the day across the board. What's so interesting about that is the professor is obviously worried about more inflation than the Fed is perhaps thinking will be the case, or maybe not as transitory for certain as they believe. Um, David Tepper at this Robin Hood uh, conference today, which, by the way, is closed press, but as often happens, there's somebody watching, they put notes out, and we're getting an indication that he is suggesting, at least in his mind, that inflation will be transitory because, as he says, the efficiencies from technologies, he says real time and the Fed time are in two different time zones. Uh, so you get a little bit of Tepper speak as there. You got to parse through that a bit. We'll continue to keep our eye on the markets here. You do have a Dow down. Uh, was down triple digits, a little bit off that. We'll be back right after this. Russian President Putin wrapping up his news conference. President Biden getting ready to begin his. Let's bring in Eamon Javers in Geneva. Eamon, give us the highlights from President Putin. Set the stage for us for President Biden. President Putin suggested that this had been a constructive, engaging conversation between the two leaders, Scott. The president suggesting that both leaders agreed to exchange ambassadors. Remember, they had suspended their ambassadors from each other's capitals. Now, he says, uh, they will exchange ambassadors once again. That was the low bar for success uh, for this summit. They went about three hours and 15 minutes and changed, depending on how you count the minutes here. That's a little bit less than what we thought the entire summit would be in the two different parts it was broken into. As you take a live look there, uh, at where we expect President Biden to appear uh, at some point now that uh, Vladimir Putin is done. Putin's also suggesting here that they agreed to continue talking in the sense of these cyber attacks that have been, hap been happening in the United States. He said they have agreed to start negotiations on cybersecurity. So uh, that is at least an effort to continue a dialogue there. No takeaways here necessarily, at least as Putin describes it. He also said uh, that he believes that most of the cyber attacks that happen in the world come from the United States, not from Russia. So Putin here in this press conference pointing the finger back at the United States for every accusation that's been lobbed at Russia. If he's accused of conducting cyber attacks or condoning cyber attacks, Putin says, well, the United States does that. If he's accused of human rights abuses, he says, what about Guantanamo Bay? If he's accused of suppressing political dissent uh, in Russia, he says, well, what about the arrests of the January 6th uh, insurrectionists up on Capitol Hill? They were expressing a political point of view, too, and now they're in jail. So Vladimir Putin accusing the United States in this press conference of many of the same things that his regime has been accused of in recent years. The president also wrapping up sort of on a philosophical note here, Scott. Vladimir Putin saying, let me tell you, in life, there is no happiness. There is only the specter of happiness. And that may give you some insight yeah. into Putin's thinking here. Yeah, you know, Eamon, I, admittedly, I, I sort of chuckled when I saw this headline where he says, we, uh, Vladimir Putin said, we reached an agreement on cyber and we'll start negotiations on that. And I'm thinking, negotiate what? Right. If you, if you believe our intelligence uh, apparatus, the, the spate of cyber attacks are, are happening in Russia. Right. 
Uh, he says that his institutions are subjected to the same risks as U.S. institutions in terms of cybersecurity. We know that's not true, right? We know that the cyber entities that have been attacking in the United States go out of their way not to attack anyone in Russia or any of the former Soviet states. That's simply a fact in terms of this spate of ransomware. Uh, now, what Vladimir Putin could be talking about is the National Security Agency and U.S. intelligence, which presumably does have a large cyber, large and robust cyber capacity to break into uh, systems around the world and steal information for U.S. intelligence purposes. That's different, though, than what we've seen in these ransomware attacks in which they're locking down specific systems in order to either create chaos or make money. These are alleged to be cyber gangs operating out of Russia. Putin's suggesting here he doesn't have anything to do with it. Biden has said that Putin could stop this if he wants to. So you get this situation where uh, Putin is blaming the United States for everything that he's been accused of. Yeah. High stakes, low expectations. I suppose that was the way this was described going in. Maybe that's the way we come out of it. Uh, Eamon, time will tell. We'll hear from the American president, President Biden, in just a few moments. I'm sure we'll be back with you as well. That's Eamon Javers for us live in Geneva at this hour. Stay with us. Stocks right now, session lows. The markets get ready for the big Fed decision, the news conference as well. After that, we'll be back right here post nine at the New York Stock Exchange in just two minutes. It's time to answer your questions. Joe, first to you. Question from Florida today. Is it a good time to add Microsoft to my portfolio? What do you think? I think it is. The all-time high was reached back in April of 263. Uh, Microsoft outperforming the S&P year-to-date up 16% versus 13.8%. But, Scott, it's all about the commercial cloud and the growth of commercial cloud. As we see this digital transformation for the economy, uh, Microsoft is well positioned to whether it's Azure, LinkedIn, 365, they're going to be able to really grab market share in the cloud. Okay. Uh, Luis with a question for you, Jenny. Is the IHI ETF or MDT a better investment for the next year? Okay. So I actually have a philosophical answer to this otherwise straightforward question. I think it depends on how you're comfortable making money. People make money in different ways. I'm a portfolio manager. My brother sells ice cream. If you like, like me, to own an individual stock and know exactly what's going on there, then Medtronic is the right, is the right bet for you, right? They make insulin pumps, pacemakers. We know that their earnings are going to grow by about 28% as people return to the doctor. But if you are not comfortable owning a single stock and would rather own a basket, then own IHI, which is a medical device company. There is some lack of control there, where yes. about a third of the companies in there do have testing devices for, for COVID. That's falling off. But they also are going to benefit from the same trends that Medtronic does. So do what's comfortable for you, what makes you feel good. You're going to make money in either case. The biggest understatement that I just heard, maybe of all time, is, quote, my brother sells ice cream. He doesn't just <laughs> sell ice cream, Jenny. He is the Van Leeuwen ice cream, Okay. That's not just any ice cream, all right? Like, we just get the facts straight here? Give your bro some credit. Okay. Yeah, I know. He's way more famous than me. <laughs> yeah. All right. Steve Weiss. The ice cream to you. in Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah. From John in South Dakota, what's your hunch for the best five-year payoff on a, sp- a spec trade uh, alphabetically? F-I-G-S, Jumia, or Vuzi? What do you think? 
Well, figs, I don't know that well, but in terms of Jumi or, Viz- or Vuzi, I think they both stand an equal chance. And again, it's speculative, so only put speculative money in there. I don't think the businesses are speculative at all. The valuations are right now. Businesses are doing incredibly well. I've spoken to each CEO recently. So I don't know if they're speculative again. The stories are not. The valuations are at this point. They will grow into them. Just a question of time. Okay, Jason, lastly to you, Jake in Connecticut, about PayPal in early 21. Has it really performed well? Should I hold or move on to another name? Yep. So it's topped out in, in February. It's trading at all-time highs. Hasn't done much since then. Total payment volumes are still up 50%. I think there's secular tailwinds here. It's a hole for me at this point. All right, good stuff. Quick break. Final trades coming up next. Okay, we're going to get to final trades in just a minute, though. Jason Snipe, you bought more Salesforce. Tell us why. I did. I think, uh, I think enterprise spend is on a, on a comeback. You know, we're seeing some margin expansion internationally with CRM. I think they'll benefit from from that. And, you know, 23% revenue growth, another strong, you know, print in the last quarter. They'll come against harder comps going forward. But I, I do like the name going forward. There are plenty of people saying, too, that, you know, value may be in vogue right now and it may still for the foreseeable future. But by the end of the year, that growth trade is, is going to come back and we'll watch rates. And that all ties in to what we're watching uh, in about an hour's time, that decision from the Fed news conference to follow. Final trade time. Jenny, Jenny Ice Cream, what do you got? H&R Block. They announced very solid earnings last night, increased the dividend yield by 4%. It's down 9% today, so you get to buy it on sale. Okay, good stuff. Uh, Joe Chernova. Jenny gave us so much there, from ice cream to IHI, which I own and love, so I'll go to another direction for healthcare, and that's the XLV, that's the healthcare ETF. Buy it. Steve Weiss? I'm staying cash like uh, Paul Tudor Jones. I'm going to wait to see what Powell mm-hmm. has to say. Okay, you and a lot of other people. All right, Jason Snipe. GM, I like that announcement this morning, $8 billion uh, into EVs. I think they'll continue to benefit and grow from here. Yeah, they're going big time in EVs. All right. Dow is uh, currently down just about triple digits. We do have the countdown less than an hour now until that Fed decision, the news conference to follow. Surprise or not, we shall see. That does it for us. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.